Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, you might have noticed my, my voice is a little shot. I, I lost it last week, uh, and I was around a lot of people, so it was very hard for me, a professional talker, someone who loves to talk, uh, to not be able to talk. So it's back now, just in time to record this intro. Um, and today's episode is a 2018 throwback, back when Kurt was the host, and Amy's story about kayaking the Blue Nile, but it's a lot more than that. We deal with like what she did in her past, uh, how she got to this point. It was substance abuse and a very serious brain injury that kind of led to all this. And you hear that a lot on the show is um, what leads people to adventure is so many different things. And a lot of times it's something tragic or something uh, very scary uh, that lead people to do make a big change in their life or lead them to say, you know, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. So if you're going through something right now, I'm going to encourage you. Um, m- maybe this is the beginning of of your next big adventure. You know, I, it, we've had some very sad stories and very hard stories on this show of people who've who've gone through some really awful things, but. Uh, it it leads them to be adventurous. It leads them to to live life to the fullest. And so, um, I can't relate in a lot of ways to some of these stories, but I, I know that we've had so many examples on the show of people taking the worst lemons possible and, and making making beautiful lives and wonderful lemonade with it. So I encourage everybody that's out there that might be going through something. Uh, there are brighter days ahead. So let's dive into this amazing story with Amy Begg. And one call out before we jump in is the last episode with Phil Decker, I mentioned it was a prostate exam that caused him to uh, be aware of his colon cancer, but it was was a colonoscopy. So I I made that mistake in the intro, uh, but we wrap that or we make that correction in the episode. Listen to that Monday's episode. It was amazing. All right, let's jump in. Hi, friends. Welcome again to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, I have Amy Begg with us, and Amy is such a great gal. She is the first female to go down the source of the Amazon, the upper Amazon, called the Rio Maranyan. I had to say that right. Maranyan. Maranyan, right on. And she's also the first female to do the Blue Nile, the source of the Nile, as well, kayaking, But not only that, she's a substance abuse counselor working with adolescents in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I want to hear about that too because it's super cool. So Amy, welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So wow, how do you become the first female to do these two crazy big rivers? I mean, everyone knows the the Nile and everyone knows the Amazon. I mean, these are the the rivers of the world. And you're the first female to, to start at the source of these things, I guess. Tell us about that. Um, happenstance. You know, um, my first trip was six years ago when I did the uh, Rio Marnion, the Upper Amazon. And it was actually kind of funny because that year, on New Year's, I said, there's two things I want to do this year. I want to paddle the Grand Canyon and I want to paddle internationally. And a few months later... Um, just through different people and everything, I heard of this guy, Rocky Contos, who is, um, he's an amazing expedition kayaker that really brings to light a lot of the world's uh, Grand Canyons around the world and everything. And he was looking to put together some people to uh, kayak the upper Amazon. And I was like, well, here we go. The Grand Canyon of Peru, that works. Wow. <laughs> so um, 
I had actually, it was kind of funny because it was only a couple months before that, that I decided to get a passport just in case. And, um, I just moved down to Charlotte and, um, my friends thought I was crazy, but I was like, well, I'm going to go. This, this sounds exactly like I was looking for. And I spent 26 days on the river there and it was absolutely amazing. So that does sound amazing to me. And I have to ask, because, you know, I used to do kayaking. People that have listened to the show for a while know that I kayaked years ago, and I kind of gave it up. I mean, I didn't give up the sport entirely, but I gave up pursuing more difficult water. And the reason was because I felt like my skill set wasn't growing quickly enough because I wasn't going often enough. And so I started taking risks that I was uncomfortable with uh, to keep up with the guys. You know what I mean? And I finally just said, no, 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 no. I'm going to be a dad for a while first. But how did you get into kayaking and have the confidence to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do the Grand Canyon of the Amazon or the Grand Canyon of Peru? You know what I mean? Well, uh, man, that's a very loaded question in so many different ways. So um, I got sober almost 12 years ago, and um, then I started very quickly after that working in the field. And one of my first bosses was a whitewater kayaker and he kept showing me pictures and I was like, man, that looks so good. I was like, that looks great. And, um, I bought a kayak and it was, um, the beginning of December in Connecticut and it was freezing and a friend brought me out into a lake and started to try to teach me how to roll until I thought my teeth were going to shiver out of my mouth. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I was hooked, you know, he brought me down my first river, the Fife Brook. And I just took off after that. And I, I mean, I paddled my first several months of paddling. Um, I traveled all over the East Coast, kayaking everywhere and any possible chance I could get. And then um, shortly into my paddling career, I actually had a pretty bad accident. Um, I hit my head on the Cheat Canyon at Cheat Fest and uh, suffered a pretty bad traumatic brain injury where I was in the hospital for two weeks and wow. had to learn how to read and walk and talk again. And then about a year after that, I, I decided that it was high falls on the Cheat Canyon. That was the rapid. I decided that I needed to kayak that rapid again, or I needed to quit kayaking. And so I went down and I, I, uh, ran that rapid again and I had a great line and I went through it. And, you know, after that, I was, Kind of was like, you know, I, I could do anything. You know, I, I got this. So I just continued to work on my paddling skills. And um, when I moved down to Charlotte a couple of years after that, I became an instructor at the Whitewater Center. And, um, you know, so that I guess when you instruct, your your skills get pretty decent because you're always telling others how to do them. So. Right. Yeah. The best way to learn anything is to teach it. I guarantee yeah. you that's it. That's awesome. So. How much experience do you think it takes someone, if they're an average learner, to be able to safely negotiate class four in a kayak? That's so hard to say because there's so many variables that play into part. I think the biggest thing with adventure sports is you have skill and you have experience. And, you know, one thing that I learned with when I hit my head is I, I had the skill to run the rapid. I didn't have the experience to know what to do if things went wrong. Mm, and right. that's the difference in, you know, any adventure sport that I think a lot of people fail to recognize is that 
people could have the skill, but you have to, you have to be prepared and you have to um, know what to do when everything doesn't go right. And that's, that's the experience part that is needed. And, you know, and how do you get that experience? Time, time in the water, time in different, you know, rivers, time, you know, different experiences. Yeah. It just takes time. You know, Amy, I, I love what you said there, and I think people need to hear it. Uh, so many people learn enough skill to do something, but they haven't learned the next step, which is, you know, how to survive when things don't go the way you want. And that's when people get in trouble with adventure sports. You know, in, yeah. when you're skydiving, you have to practice pulling the reserve chute. It just it, You have to know how to do that, even if you never need to. You have to. You know what I mean? Well, I- yeah, I do. I'm actually a skydiver also, and I practice my emergency <laughs> procedures. Yep. I, I, every time I'm in the plane, I pre- practice my emergency procedures. I've never had to pull my reserve, but I, I practice it. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be second nature. You know, I taught my kids to alpine ski. We had so much fun doing that. But before I got them on the really steep stuff, where you're not going to stop if you fall. You're going you're gonna to stop when you hit a tree or a boulder, right? Right. I, I said, before we go there, I'm going to teach you guys how to do a self-arrest if you fall. So we got on a steeper slope that was safe. I said, you got to fall down. I taught them how to, to roll out of a fall and get their skis below them and kick their edges in so they could stop. I mean, it's a basic skill. No one teaches right. that. Yeah, You know exactly. what I mean? But we practiced for a half day, falling and recovering. Then I took them to the double black, and we skied it. And it, it just makes sense. So in kayaking, what are those skills? What do people need to know? Well, what I always say to people is um, before you move up in a class or of rapid, so if you're moving from class two to class three, you should be able to catch every eddy in a class two rapid. And you should be able to put your boat anywhere you want, and you should be able to be able to identify multiple lines through that rapid. And then you move up to class three and same deal. You know, if you can't make the moves in the class below that, you're not ready to move up. Uh, And yeah, and I think, you know, especially I see, I see a big trend a lot in kayaking recently where it's about bombing rapids. And, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm glad you survived that rapid, but you didn't paddle it. You didn't kayak Mm. it. And knowing how to kayak a rapid is being able to catch those eddies, being able to, you know, catch that micro eddy behind a rock in the middle of the rapid, then ferry over to the other side and catch an eddy on the side of the river and, and really work a rapid. And that's, you know, something that needs to be practiced consistently and, you know, be able to really get to feel whitewater and know what it does. You know, it's like that, it's my favorite word, the hydrotopography, right? So hydrotopography is study the surface of the water and knowing what that water is doing, how to read it, and how different boat angle edging, you know, makes a difference of what your boat does in that particular current. Yeah, that's good. I needed you back when I was learning to kayak. Where were you? <laughs> that would have helped I, me so much. I was probably still in elementary school. <laughs> oh, ouch. Okay. I, I'm only 23. I keep saying yeah. that on the show over and over and over again. I celebrated the 27th anniversary of my 23rd year just a couple of weeks ago, but I am 23, and I love it. It's a, it's a best age. I believe it. <laughs> Well, Amy, I love your approach to that, and I think that's how I got in trouble, actually. I just thought, well, I can kind of do a roll when I need to most of the time, so I'm ready for class four. But I never practiced catching every single eddy and and 
doing those maneuvers you're talking about. I didn't practice that stuff. And so, man, I got worked one day. So it was the day I said, okay, no more. I got worked so badly and beat up and bruised up and lost everything. You know, I had to chase all my gear down the river and some stuff I never found. And I just thought, this is, this is dumb. I've got two kids at home at the time that need a daddy, you know? But the yeah. thing was, it's because I didn't learn the skills you're talking about. Had I done that, I would have had a different outcome. So awesome. Yeah, and you know, and it's and it's something that's not talked about enough in kayak instruction, and um, and of course, I'm saying this because this is I, I learned through experience, not such great experience, um, to be able to come to this conclusion and everything. But you know, slow is fast in these type of sports. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've also noticed people, you know, you, skiing is something that I did more slowly and, and built more skill with. And people will, will say, well, I would never ski that run. It's too dangerous. And I look at it and I say, well, not at all if you know what you're doing. Kayaking is right. the same way, right? It, it's, it's a matter of having the skill set. The majority of class five rapids are really class three moves. Mm. You know, what, what makes a class five rapid a lot of times is the consequence of not hitting that move or that line, you know? And, you know, the, the big part of class five is being able to have such strong skill that you know you're going to be able to hit your line. Or, or if you don't hit your line, that you absolutely know how to get out of it and what to do. Nice. And, you know, that's what, that's what makes class five and, and the death potential of the consequence, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, details. But, you know, it's also, it's like, it's a mentality and a mindset. These sports are so much of, you know, your mental capacity and, you know, like how was I able to decide to go to, you know, the upper Amazon that first time it was because I knew mentally that I had what it took to, to get through that experience and, you know, be able to pick my lines, be able to be conservative also, because that was another thing, not having, you know, that ego and pride, like, oh, I'm going to go through this rapid and pick the hardest line. I'm like, no, I'm the only kayaker here. I'm going to pick a conservative line. So if something happens, I'm not, you know, literally up the creek. <laughs> nice. So I want to dive into the stories about these two trips because they're going to be so cool. But before we do, I want to hear the story. You said that you got sober 12 years ago, and now you're a substance abuse counselor working with adolescents. Um, I, I got to hear that story first because that's, that's part of who Amy is. And it's amazing when I hear stories like that. Yeah, it totally is a part of who I am. Um, you know, I always say it's a big part of me. It's not what defines me, but it's given me the life I have. I, um, I was, you know, a pretty bad alcoholic and drug addict um, in, into my late teens. I got sober. I went, I went to rehab two months after I turned 21. So I, I only drank legally for two months. <laughs> and, yeah, which is, which is awesome. Um, and the treatment center that I went to, Mountainside, in the, it's the northwest corner of Connecticut, and their program was very much, you know, encompassed the, the outdoors. And they would bring us camping up on the mountain and on hikes. And, you know, it was through that that I remembered my connection with nature and the outdoors. And I always, I always liked it, but I lost that. And it was very quickly after, you know, I got sober there that I started to get back into, I, I ski also, got back into skiing and hiking and uh, road biking and mountain biking and every, everything under the sun. And I learned how to, how to kayak. And 
you know, from there, I worked with adults for the first five years of my career, and I decided that adults suck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're really hard to, to deal with. They're entitled, and they don't like to listen. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. And so um, at the same time, I decided to move down to Charlotte because the whitewater down here was better, and icicles don't form on my helmet in the winter when I kayak down here. Um, so... I moved down here and I got a job working with adolescents and I've absolutely loved it. It's the whole idea that, um, that they have the rest of their lives and I could be impacting their lives that it could make such a difference that it could, it could be a game changer for the rest of their life. Mm. And so I go into the schools and I run groups with them and I do, I, I do talk to them about the outdoors and, you know, just this morning I was running a group and, I told them I wasn't going to see him for two weeks. And they're like, well, where are you going? I said, well, to kayak the Grand Canyon. They're like, what? And I said, I know. I told you there's so much stuff you guys are missing. There's so much more than Charlotte, North Carolina, you know? Oh, that is so good that you can plant those seeds. That's cool. Yeah, it gets them, it gets them thinking. And it gets them realizing, like, you know, nobody tells them, hey, you can do this. Hey, you want to travel? You can. Hey, you want to go, you know, kayak the Grand Canyon for two weeks? Go for it. You could do it, you know? And they're just not exposed to it. So, you know, I try to expose them to the things that they're not. Do you think that adventure sports can make a really good alternative to substance abuse? Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, um, my, that boss that, uh, whitewater kayaks and taught me, um, who has become such a mentor in my life, Tim Walsh, he owns a company called adventure recovery. and, And that's kind of the premise of the entire company is that, we, as alcoholics and addicts and people in recovery, we, sh- we need something. We need something else. We need something fulfilling. And the nature and great outdoors and adventure sports, you know, really is a great substitute for that adrenaline, that high that we are looking for, you know? It's like I tell people, they're like, you know, like my adolescents, they joke, they're like, hey, you don't get high. I say, yeah, I do all the time. You know, well, one, I jump on planes. So <laughs> I get a lot higher than you guys. But, but you know, that, that natural high and that natural adrenaline that you get from adre- adventure sports is, I think, such a good substitute for people in recovery and trying mm. to get sober. That's cool. And another thing I hear a lot of people say is that the, the gaining of the self-awareness and self-confidence and you know, the self-sufficiency, the self-reliance, all the things that you gain from adventure sports, that that also helps. All of it, it absolutely does. Because, I mean, most most of us that come into recovery, you know, we don't think highly of ourselves. We don't think we could do anything. You know, it, it for me, has absolutely been adventure sports that has given me the confidence. And, you know, it's, you know, I said earlier that, my recovery is not what defines me, but adventure sports is nice. Yeah. And it is really cool, you know, and it's given me that it's, it's given me, you know, who I am as a person. Right. Yeah. So what do you think about the adventure sports community? You've been doing it for a while. You must've met a lot of amazing people. I, I mean, I, yeah, I love the adventure sports community. Like I said, I'm, I'm in a lot of them. You know, I also rock climb, you know, in there and stuff. And the, the really cool thing is that I think overall the adventure sports community is, is very helpful, understanding, 
Um, people are always willing to take you out on trips and, you know, be, you know, inclusive and really, um, I, I think it's, it's a, a culture that is unlike most others. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's something about having a common passion, but it's also yeah. something about connecting with nature and getting really real with people because adventure sports put you in places where you are real. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, absolutely. It is It is the raw self. Yeah. And that makes people better friends because they've been honest. It really does. And I mean, and let's be honest, and in our society nowadays, you know, getting away from the technology and social media and everything is, is such a, a rarity that it's a, I think it, it provides a platform for people to socialize and, you know, be forced to, to build community again, which I don't think we get as much of anymore. <laughs> mm, I love it. Yeah, very well said. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, let's dive into this upper Amazon. Now, let me try to say it again. Rio Maranyan. <laughs> Maranyan. <laughs> it's You're the Rio close. Onion, the, the river of onions. Maranyan. Okay. Well, tell us about the Rio Maranyan and what was it like to go there? Man, it was so fascinating. I, I absolutely love the Rio Maranyan. It was um, absolutely gorgeous, first of all. Like just beautiful it was unbelievably beautiful um the people for the most part were really nice we would uh get to villages every once in a while and i mean you're talking about you know people that have their own villages that's all they have like we talk to them they don't know what internet or mail is and everything but they're willing to give us their fruits that they had you know and help us out and you know it was just again you know, seeing that culture and that real sense of um, of humankind just helping each other was was amazing. Mm. Um, what was really cool about the rapids that I liked is the the first part of the river actually was pretty cold, uh, and there was a lot of rapids that actually seemed a, a lot more like creek like like for me. There was a lot more technical moves. Um, rocks and boofs and everything like that and then the river just opened up and it was very big water fun waves um a couple of rapids it was, it was funny because we were not the first to go down there was a couple other expeditions here and there but there wasn't anything really written or anything set so every rapid we got up to was just a all right well let's see what what's this is gonna be Mm. And it was fascinating at times because we'd get to like rapids that would take 90 degree corners and your scouting was like, well, I don't know what's behind that corner and I have no way of getting to it. So I'm hoping it's not bad. Wow. <laughs> I think that would terrify me. <laughs> it, it, it was a little terrifying, especially, like I said, you know, um, we had a, a cataract with us and I was pretty much the sole kayaker. So, um, so sometimes the cataract would go down first, but mostly it was me going down first and be like, well, hopefully I'll see, hopefully I'll see you at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my lands. Were you just really, really nervous or was it just fun? The first week I was very nervous. Um, there was 
well, one, this was the first time I really was doing a multi-day trip. (laughs) Then the other thing is, is that, you know, I'm I'm used to our modern day whitewater kayaks. And I I was in a Prion rocket, which is, you know, a full displacement hole, very thin boat, um, very unlike anything I've ever paddled. So for the first week, it really was like, all right, that's the line. Okay, now what line do I think I could paddle in this boat right now? Oh, so was it a, a longer boat and that sort of thing? It was longer. It was thinner, completely full displacement hole. So Not as um, much rocker. Yeah, I'm used to having more edges on my boats and stuff. So it, it took me a while to get used to the boat. But once I did, it was kind of like, all right, I, I got this now. Um, and after that, it just it became fun. You know, we'd get to, there was, gosh, there was one time we got to a village and this woman told us, because they haven't seen anyone go down this river. And she's like, oh, there's, you know, a 20 meter waterfall coming up that's straight down. And, you know, my sons and his friends threw a log in it and it never resurfaced. (laughs) And so we were like, all right, cool. You know, I didn't know we were dropping waterfalls on this trip. But, you know, there was never a, a waterfall. They just didn't know what the river was either and it scared them right well i have to say man when you're standing on the shore i know that a lot of the listeners have experienced this you're on the riverbank and the water is so powerful and the noise you can even feel the ground shake and the the spray in your face and you're like if i fell in that i would die you know what i mean that is scary stuff but then you jump in a kayak and off you go yeah and we're like all right see you but then (laughs) yeah but then as we started going down the river, we really started learning about um, all of these dams that were, were projected to be built on, on the Amazon for uh, hydroelectric power. And we would start talking to these people and, you know, some of them were worried because they thought that we were surveyors for the dam. Mm. And I actually, I actually found, I didn't find this out until the Nile in Ethiopia, Rocky told me that there was one group of people that were running down to the river to shoot us, but we were going too fast. So they didn't catch us. Yeah. So that was, that was a good thing. Um, But it was because they thought that we were with the dams to, um, to help build these dams. And the problem is, is that uh, a lot of these dams that they were putting up was going to flood, you know, their villages and their homes and their communities. So they're very opposed to it. Mm, No doubt. You know, in my family's past, there was a a river that was dammed, and uh, it wiped out an entire community. People had to relocate, and that was my grandparents' generation. They went through that. I, I It really does happen to people, and I think sometimes we don't think that through. But what about the ecological impacts of these dams? Not just flooding villages, but what does it do to the river? Right. I mean, it destroys the rivers. I mean, especially for recreational purposes but it it absolutely destroys you know these people are using these rivers for fishing and um you know gold mining is a huge huge way of making money in those areas of peru where we would see them sifting sand on the side of the rivers you know for gold and everything and it would ruin livelihood just so many different factors um chocolate Rio Marañón Valley is known to produce the best chocolate in the world. Um, really? Yeah. What's his name? Anthony Bourdain. I was watching one of his 
one of his shows one day and all of a sudden he's like, I'm on the search for the best chocolate in the world. And all of a sudden he's like, I'm in Peru. I'm like, oh, you're going to the Rio Marignan. And he, all of a sudden he's like, the Marignan Valley. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like we found some of that chocolate while we we're on the river. And it's some of the best, most desired because of the elevation and perfect temperature and stuff. So, I mean, the impacts are just absolutely enormous and people don't realize it. So then why would they want to dam the river in the first place? Why, what's the motivation to, to do this? Electrical power. And the crazy thing is, is that it's not even power that's going to go back into Peru and make that country better. It was Korean companies that were coming in to dam it and taking the power. So, uh, See, that's what's so heartbreaking. And we've heard the story many times before. But I, I guess call it underprivileged populations they kind of get pushed aside and then someone makes a lot of money or gets to harvest the energy of the, the lands of these people. And it's like, ah, oh, if it doesn't even benefit the people that were injured by it, then it's just, that's tragic. Yeah, it's terrible. You know, and the worst part is, is that, yeah, they're very unfair in the ways that, that they do things and go about it. I mean, we talked to this one family that told us that the, um, the dam companies came in and they'd hold town meetings and make them sign blank pieces of paper. Um, and they told them that it was so that they could see how many uh, people came to the meeting, but then they took those blank pieces of paper and then transcribed on them that, that um, they agreed for these dams being put up. So, you know, it's not helping them at all. It's, you know, betraying them, lying to them and, and changing, you know, an area that they've lived in for generations. Wow. That's tragic. Is there something yeah. that people can do? How can they get involved? We actually um, worked extensively, or Rocky mostly. Rocky is tremendous at um, really bringing awareness, and he ended up talking to the president and everything, got in touch with International Rivers, um, and really brought a lot of awareness and attention to the river. Um, more attention of people paddling this river, going down it, you know, bringing it to light. I mean, that was back in, what, 2012. The first dams were supposed to be up in 2013 and still, you know, aren't done because there's been so many people opposed to it and so much uh, attention now brought to it. Oh, so I tell good. people, pa paddle these rivers. Yeah. You know, paddle them. You know, show people, you know, how much they're needed and how beautiful these areas are. So if a listener says, okay, I'm not a paddler, I believe in this cause, I'd like to take action, but I don't know who to call or what to do, it, do you have any organizations that you would recommend or any contacts they, they could make? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've said his name a lot, but Rocky Contos, you know, my good friend that, um, you know, I've done these trips with, he runs trips down the Marnion all the time now, and people that don't paddle, he'll put you on a raft, you could go down it and experience it and, and not know how to kayak, which is really cool. And it's, it's a once in a lifetime experience, like to see the beauty and different culture and, you know, scenery is just, it's absolutely unbelievable. So how did that trip on the upper Amazon change you? Um, it changed me in a lot of ways. You know, I, I can't, well, well one, I came back and I couldn't make a decision on any restaurant menu. <laughs> because it was it was overwhelming to the point that it was anxiety ridden, ridden because you know like there you go to a restaurant and they're like here's what we're serving today you know right um 
But with that, it was seeing different cultures and how the different parts of the world do things and compared to what we do in America, you know, like one of the stories I always tell is we got to this little village called Selendin and we went to restock and resupply and go into this one little store and there's like this five-year-old girl manning the store and she turns to me with such authority as like, take care. Like, what do you want? What do you need? You know, like where I was like, oh, okay. I just, I just want yogurt, you know, but you know, here's this five-year-old manning her, her family shop and our five-year-olds, we don't allow them to tie their shoes. Wow. You know, so um, that was that was kind of huge to kind of step back and see that that difference in, in the culture. And, you know, also 26 days on a river, it's that's a lot, you know, 26 days of being around the same people and doing the same thing and not being around technology. And it, it really I actually didn't want to didn't want to come back. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So at how much distance do you think you traveled in those 26 days? We went, uh, I think it was approximately 400 miles. Wow. Yeah. So, so a while. And you know, they say uh, any new habit takes about 30 days, you know, to establish. So you, you got in the habit of being on the river in 26 days, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely got into that habit. You know, it's, you get into a pattern and you know of what you do every morning how you how you set up your tent how you take down your tent how you pack your bag you know it's just it, it becomes a, a very systematic which is awesome and it's funny though because that that trip taught me how to do those things for all of my my trips afterwards so you know I've paddled in Mexico and like Ethiopia and Grand Canyon and I have a system now because of that trip yeah you have the experience you were talking about <laughs> earlier that makes it all good so what was the terrain like? I really want to know. So it was in Peru. Um, was it jungle or was it like dry canyons? Was it really mountainous? What, what are we talking about? All of it. And that was what was so cool. It was all of that. You know, like the first part of the trip, it started out very desert-like, reminded me a lot of, you know, your Colorado and Arizona. Um, and then at the end of the, even before that, we're passing through 14,000 foot canyon or uh, mountains to get to the river. And then by the end, we're in, you know, lush green jungles with the piranha and, you know, monkey and everything like that. So wow. you had a little bit of everything, which was so cool. Okay. Tell us a story about when things didn't go like you wanted them to. Something didn't go as planned. I know that had to happen. Hopefully it doesn't involve piranha. <laughs> No, no, it, it doesn't. Um, gosh, on well, probably we had this. We had this one. Oh, this was this is interesting. We had this one guy, Mike, on the trip that would probably 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 didn't need to be there. Um, on an expedition, it's a little bit different than I think. You know, all right, this is well known. It's set up. We know the you know expeditions are a little bit different. Is there's a lot of unknowns. And we get to um, this one part, Wasson's Landslide, which was almost an unpassable small section of river because there was a big rock landslide. And we wake up that morning and, and he said, I, uh, I don't want to be here. I don't think I should be here. I, we're, I'm walking out. And we're like, yeah, 
you can't you can't walk out you realize we're in the middle of freaking nowhere right like this is like the middle of nowhere peru they haven't seen white people here before and you just want to walk out yeah the river is out <laughs> yeah. out is the river yeah like you don't understand and so after much debate and talking um rocky's wife barb who's fluent in spanish and me who has the whitewater skills we we decided that um barb would walk out with um with mike we found a, a local who was going to bring a mule down and bring them up to the nearest town to take a bus to then the bigger town where he could catch a plane and i was going to go through Watson's landslide with the cataract and Rocky and that that's it. Just the two of us. And we ended up having to lug all of the gear over just boulders and like huge rocks by ourselves. And it took us because it was just the two of us. It took us a couple days to get through there. Oh, and man. I had to camp out on top of like a rocks cause there's no like beach or anything to camp out on. And yeah. Wow. So that was interesting days to get past the one rapid. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were lugging coolers, and so, I mean, this was, what, week two out of, you know, a four-week trip, so we still had all of our food, and it, it was pretty heavy. Wow, what what class do you think the Rapid would be? That was a, for sure a five. Um, Rocky ran a boat through a kayak through a small section of it. We tried to feed the catarap empty, like just the skeleton part of it through parts of the rapid and then we had to actually hoist it up and over boulders in another part ourselves Wow! where yeah <laughs> yeah so that took a while so this is real adventure what were you thinking at that point in time did you think well what are we doing here we, we really bit off more than we should have or was it like oh i'm taking this in stride it's part of the fun yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the type of person, I'm like, well, this is going to make a good story, you know? <laughs> like, like, you know, it's it just like, I guess for me, it's it's just not a question. It, for In my head, it's like, this is just something we need to do. We have to get through this with all the stuff. It's it's like, a, it's a non-negotiable in my brain. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do what what we need to do and I'm really glad that I'm in semi-shape and strong. I could help out with this. Wow, just do whatever it takes to get through. So when you yeah. would scout these things, it sounds like you did a fair amount of scouting from the water. Um, boat scouting. Uh, did, yikes. I mean, did you always feel like you had an out if you had to have it? I mean, it, what if you came across a waterfall or something? Um. Yeah, I mean, there was, like, there was a couple of little sections that I portaged around just because... Um, especially when it was only Rocky and I, and, and, you know, I, I, I obviously trust Rocky with my life, but you know, there's always, there's always that, that variable of something going around wrong. And when there's two people, you know, for me, there's a certain risk that I won't take. Right. Um, and so there was a couple of small sections of river when it was just the two of us that I chose to, to walk my boat around because, um, you know, it looked like there was some really bad undercuts and just stuff that I didn't want to be near. So, uh, you know, my thinking is um, I have a very long trip here and I need to come out safe. So, you know, I again, you know, I don't I don't need to prove anything, anything to anyone. I have no problem putting my boat on my shoulder walking around. 
<laughs> I think you proved a lot to me just that you have some <laughs> wisdom, some discernment, and that you're willing to take off on an adventure like this in the first place. That's amazing. You know, what Thanks. an amazing adventure. So you said it was 400 miles. We know at least one rapid was class five. How would you characterize a river as a whole? Was there a lot of really difficult stuff or was it a, a big mix? No, it was a big mix. I mean, in general, I would classify it a, a three, four. Um, just a lot of really fun, big, huge wave trains that, I mean, just, just good, big whitewater. Mm. And what was, how about the scenery on a scale of one to 10? How great was it? Oh gosh, that's, I mean, it's so tough. I've seen, I, I, I don't know. It's still probably my favorite river. I'd give it a 10. And you're going to do the Grand my, Canyon next. So <laughs> I'd like to see what the comparison is, but you're not there yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't wait either to see it, too. I, right now, the only thing that's going through my head about the Grand Canyon is there's no crocodiles. So that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> if you need to swim, it's not quite the gamble. Right, right. You know, it's because, um, you know, the Nile, I just got off the Nile in August. And um, I, I definitely have some post-crocodile stress disorder from that trip. So <laughs> well, tell us about the Nile, then. We've got to get there anyway. It's a perfect segue. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, if you want to rate that trip one to crazy, that would say crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you started this in Ethiopia and how far did you go? Uh, we went, gosh, we were about 30 kilometers, um, from, from Sudan when we ended, um, which is about uh, is 17, 18 miles, I guess. Okay. Um, so we went around the same, I think it went 400, 450 miles down the Nile in, uh, 16-ish days around there. Wow. So that was uh, a, a faster trip. The water was moving extremely fast. I mean, we were, we were on the flat water sections, um, moving around 12 miles an hour. Unbelievable. I did not know it was that fast. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, it was monsoon season too, so... Um, it rained on us every day. Um, the river would uh, rise and fall quite a bit while we were there. So uh, finding camp was something that we actually had to be very intentional on uh, thinking about, well, the water could rise up this far. So <laughs> so how do you judge that? Um, strong guesstimates and looking at, I mean, I say that, but realistically trying to look at water lines and like the sand and the beach or on the rocks and everything to see the recent water lines and staying above that. That always scared me a little bit. The idea of going to bed at night and falling asleep and not knowing what's going to happen to the water that's next to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I don't think I slept well for that entire trip. Um, between that and the fear of a crocodile grabbing me out of my tent. <laughs> <that was> <laughs> <laughs> That what an adventure! So, how many crocodiles did you see? In our sixteen days, um, the ones that we counted and saw was around two hundred. Wow! And, yeah, and like the first couple of days, you know, the first couple of days we'd see a six, seven foot crocodile, and like, man, look at that huge crocodile. A couple of days after that, that same size crocodile would be like, meh, you know, nothing to write home about. <laughs> <laughs> That's just bait for the other ones. <laughs> right. They just got, they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, yeah. Oh. Um, 
And they're aggressive. So they'd see you in the water and they'd actually jump in the water and start charging towards you. My lands. Do you think they were territorial and trying to protect something? Or do you think they were hungry and trying to get a bite? Uh, probably a little bit of both, I'd say. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you're in a kayak? I was in a kayak for a while um, towards the end of the trip when we started seeing bigger and bigger um, crocodile and I, I chose to sit on the raft more and more. And so I, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer on any of these trips. I, for me, I can't just be a passenger. So I was actually the first time I really oared a raft, <laughs> but I nice. did a lot of it. Oh, that's great. You know, it's a, uh, it's a matter of being adaptable sometimes, huh? Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, well, all right, this is what this is. Cool. Let's do it. You know, um, being extremely adaptable on these types of trips is important. You know, uh, Rocky and this other guy, Kalen, I actually, I wasn't able to get there at the same time as them. So I, I was meeting them up on the river at this bridge and there was some miscommunication and I was told that they said they were getting there early. And so I had a driver bring me out with all the supplies to Mertul, this bridge that we were meeting at. And, um, I'm waiting there and it's getting dark and they're not there. And I was like, you know, well, guess I'm just going to wait. And it was funny because there were some Ethiopian military guys that, I mean, they were just, they they were so interested in like me, this, you know, his, in their culture, you know, like, it's crazy. I'm like, here's this, this young white female, <laughs> just totally fine with pitching her tent on the side of river and waiting, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's cultural. It's kind of a culture clash for them, huh? It, it, a huge culture clash, but you know they were really cool. There was, I mean, of course, a huge language barrier. I um, I taught one of the the um, the military guys the macarena. Uh, so we found some things. <laughs> yeah, we found some things to do in in the the time that I was waiting. So, <laughs> did it make you nervous that they didn't show up when expected? I mean, I was a little bit nervous. Um. I was a little bit nervous. I was kind of sitting there like, uh, I, I use the Garmin inReach, uh, which is two way messenger. And I didn't know if Rocky had a spot device on him. So I was texting one of my friends in the States to try to get in touch with Rocky's wife to find out if he had a spot on him and if he's like posted anything. So. Wow. Was it, were they coming down the river to you or were they just delayed otherwise? Uh, they were coming down, and they actually were exactly on the time frame that they said they were going to be on. Um, the guy that we are using to help us with logistics, um, he's, he's Ethiopian and owns a travel company in uh, the capital, Addis Ababa. He ended up being pretty sketchy um, in many different ways. So um, it's pure speculation, but I think it was a way of getting more money out of us having a driver bring me out there early than have to wait there so (laughs) interesting yeah so there's all those little other things that you don't always think about on trips like this that you deal with let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode well, what was this, this leg, this tributary of the Nile, what was it like? Um, I felt like I was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
on the Chocolate River. <laughs> really? That's, so it's, it's called the Blue what, Nile, but it's chocolate. It, it is chocolate. I felt like I was paddling in chocolate milk. Um, but it was also monsoon season, so a lot of sediment was washed up and everything. And you had, you know, tributaries on the side that were flashing because of the rain. So a lot of different things being washed out into the Nile. So um, saw a lot of logs also. And But, yeah, it, it, was, it was fascinating how the river varied between us going through these, you know, these canyons that were pretty tight to um, opening up to the width of probably, you know, two football fields. <laughs> mm. So lots of variety. What about this? You said the last river had a lot of variety. What about this one as far as a class? How difficult is it? Um, this one, I would say, you know, uh, also a good three, four big water, big waves, um, crashing wave holes in some ra- uh, huge crashing wave holes. So, um, it wasn't as technical in the canyons. There was, um, uh, there was an issue with you, you get a lot of big whirlpools and a lot of different currents coming in from different ways that create some really funky water. I actually, it freaked me out. I swam once. And fortunately, the only time I swam was I just got back in my boat and I was trying to peel out of this eddy, but there was like five different currents that were coming at me and it flipped my boat. And because there was currents coming everywhere, I was trying so hard. I could not roll my boat. It's like <laughs> your paddle just sinks instead of giving you the resistance you need, that kind of thing. Yeah, I was just like stuck. Like, you know, like I, I couldn't even move my paddle. And I was like, well, th-, and I'm like, I remember sitting there and I'm like, well, this is odd. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it was kind of crazy. And, you know, like I said, like, thank God I was close to the side of the river and everything. And I don't think I've ever self-rescued as fast as I did <laughs> there. Um, Kaylin helped me some too, got my boat and everything to the side. But I mean, the more fear factor of not swimming comes with, of course, the, the, the wildlife. Oh, my lands. Yeah. Did you ever really fear for your life or was it just kind of like we have to be careful here? Oh, oh no. There was there was a few times that I was like, Whew. like there was one where we pulled into this beach and where at first we're like, oh, this is going to be a great beach to camp. And there literally all of a sudden comes this huge crocodile. And it just starts like coming lumbering down at us. And if it didn't trip over its own two feet and literally face plant, that thing would have gotten us. Whoa. <laughs> and that night, yeah, that night at camp, once we finally did find a camp and everything, I mean, we like, you know, Rocky was Rocky was in the kayak this time and Kayla and I were on the raft and I mean we got out of there really fast and everything. <laughs> and we laughed about it at camp that night, but it, it really was. If, if he wasn't so clumsy, we, we would have been in a bad situation. That is nuts. That is so great. So how did you choose a campsite then? If you, if you were just likely to be right on top of one of these guys? Um, I mean, we tried to find campsites where they weren't. So we would look to make sure crocodile weren't around. Um, they're usually territorial in their areas higher up. Uh, closer to the end of the river where we took off, we weren't finding beaches anymore. So there was like huge, tall brush, this like, you know, grassy, thick grassy type of stuff. 
above our heads and we'd literally take our paddles and flatten it out to make a, make a camp. Um, one morning that didn't turn out so well because there was bees everywhere. I got stung three times and I tell you what, African bees hurt. (laughs) Like they, (laughs) they are the worst bee stings I've ever had. Like they hurt and their stinger stays in you. And I had to have to have Kaylin or Rocky like pull out the stinger. And what happens is once they, one stings you, it releases a pheromone for others to sting you. And that's, you know, not good. (laughs) So, man. So, I, I don't know. I'm not really sold that this is the trip that I should go on, Amy. You're going to have to sell me on this now. Crocodiles, crazy rapids, crazy currents, logs getting flooded into the river, uh, bees attacking. What else happened? Well, uh, so, <laughs> I mean, we only got shot at once and held hostage by the Ethiopian military for a day and a half. But other than that, it was a good <laughs> trip. <laughs> All right. There's got to be a bit of crazy to go on a trip like this. Man, in the end, are you glad you did it? Would you recommend it? Or would you be like, you really got to know what you're getting into? Um, I think with this trip, I wouldn't recommend this to the new kayaker or I want to sit on a raft and I've never done something like this. I think you have to have a little bit of of that outdoor wherewithal um, for a trip like this. But I still would recommend it to people because, um, I mean, the scenery there is uncanny. It's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, again, when we do an expedition for this first time, it's a lot different than when it's, you know, planned trip and people know it. You know, we're, we're kind of like the guinea pigs and getting everything set up and, um you know, the great thing about going back and doing a trip after after we've done it is that now, you know, there's logistics on all the good campsites, where to camp, you know, where to stop, all this stuff. Where right. we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Um but yeah, it's it's definitely a riskier trip. Um, but it is, it's still I thought it was it was gorgeous and um Africa is beautiful, Ethiopia is, is gorgeous. It's a little a little turned around country but other than that um you know it it really really was a cool trip um the crocodile were scary though like i i really have to say that's that's the one part of the trip that's tough because um there's a lot of them you know people say hippos are the most dangerous we saw 12 hippos those didn't bother me at all you just don't want to be between the water and the hippo Right. They're, I mean, they're big. Those things are like, they're huge. They're like a little mini school bus, but, um, but they, they mind themselves. Right. So they don't, they see you and actually will kind of like dip down in the water and, you know, mind their own business where the crocodile see you and they're like, boom, into the water coming after you. (laughs) I think it would turn into uh, finding Nemo to remember the scene where just keep swimming, just keep swimming. I I actually said that a lot to myself. (laughs) Just keep paddling. Just keep paddling. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine how crazy. Okay, between the two, the real Maranian? Maranian. 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 (laughs) Maranian. I'll never get it. You're so close. I'm so sorry. The Maranian. So between the the Rio Maranian and the Blue Nile, which one was your favorite? Oh, Maranian for sure. Really? Marnion for sure. Yeah. I mean, that is just such a beautiful, gorgeous place. Um, 
like I said, I, I, I don't regret my trip to Ethiopia, <laughs> but it, it was, it was, it was a very challenging place to be. So is it harder for you to go on a trip like this to get there and say, okay, I'm going to have this big culture, you know, shift and going to do this crazy thing. And I don't really know what I'm going to get into. Or is it harder at the end to come back to Charlotte and say, Oh, I'm back in normalcy again. Um, a little bit of both, you know, I, I'd like to say that I, I'm, I'm pretty accultured and, you know, I'm able to, you know, assimilate to environments pretty well. And, um, you know, I, I understand cultural diversity and differences and respecting people's culture. You know, that's a very big thing is that I'm, I don't care that I'm American, I'm in their country, right. you know? So for me, that means, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the best to, you know, assimilate to their culture. Um, which I, I, I don't, I actually really enjoy that. I, I find it fascinating to see how other people live. Like in Ethiopia, you only eat with your right hand. Um, there's not utensils there. So everything's, you know, you eat with your fingers and you only eat with your right because it's, it's known that you wipe, you know, you wipe yourself with your left. Oh, right. No yeah, left. And so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, but I, I have, um, when I'm away for a while, I do have a hard time coming back to the States. Um, it sometimes takes me a while and like, I have to remember like, oh yeah, that's not accepted here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I can't do that. All right. You know? So, um, and it, it is like different things. Life is so much simpler in other places and it becomes overwhelming when I first come back, you know, with all of a sudden the technology and information everywhere and having to make you know, decision on 500 things on a menu or, you know, all these different things. And that, that's always a little bit of a challenge. Mm, you make me want to go just to escape, you know, all yeah. the, the constant media and constant decision making and things that just for a while to go and to be with nature and to fall into that rhythm and unwind and reset, mm -hmm. you know, you make me want to do that. I encourage everyone to do it. You don't know what you're missing. It's like when you get away from all this stuff, it's like you take this breath and you're like, wow, like, like this is what I've been blind to. And I'm looking down at my phone, you know, texting five people as I'm, you know, walking across the street or, you know, you're missing the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Amy, we are running out of time already, which is amazing because I feel like we just started but yeah. <laughs> what, give us a parting shot. What would you like the listeners to know about doing these big expedition whitewater trips? Um, I think the biggest thing to know is that, you know, as crazy as they sound and stuff, that these are accessible to everybody. You know, there is a way to be able to have these experiences. And there's people out there, you know, like I said, like Rocky Contos with uh, Sierra's Rios that are you know, have trips that you can experience this stuff and it's not out of reach for the normal person. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to do like a crazy expedition the first time going down experiencing it, but you know, anybody could still have that experience of getting away, being on a river, you know, seeing a different part of the world. And it's so, it's so gratifying. I, I really do 
really do suggest everyone try to do it. And um, anyone that wants to contact me for more information or ever has any questions, that's something, you know, I more than welcome to anybody. Yeah, it was going to be my next question. How can people reach you? So uh, let's see, Twitter, Facebook, what, what, what's the best way? Uh, Facebook is awesome. You know, I, I, Facebook Messenger, my name, A-M-I-E-B-E-G-G. Um, email, it's my name, A-M-I-E-B-E-G-G at gmail.com. Or Instagram, uh, Adventure Amy. So Adventure A-M-I-E. So either one of those are great ways that you could get in touch with me. Um, and I'm, except when I'm, you know, on a canyon somewhere, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty reachable. <laughs> Did you put a lot of pictures from your trips into Instagram? Yeah, I, I try to, I try to put a lot of pictures from my trips. I try to even normal happenings, um, you know, day to day kayaking locally or, or skydiving or rock climbing locally. I, I, I put all that stuff on my Instagram. So. Okay. One last yeah, time. Uh, yep. Marignan. <laughs> so close. Well, thank you, Amy, so much for sharing with us today about the Marignan. And we really do appreciate you telling us about all this stuff. I feel like we hardly scratched the surface. We need 10 shows just to do one of these expeditions. But thank you for sharing yeah, it with us. And so I'm going to go to Adventure Amy on Instagram because I want to see the pictures. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Amy Begg, that's A-M-I-E-B-E-G-G, sounds like that's the way to reach you on most of these social networks. Try to keep it simple. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Amy. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. You bet. And for all the listeners out there, wow, can you imagine? This is crazy stuff, but it sounds like so much fun. Until the next show, dream big. Come up with some goals and some ideas and some things that you can look forward to, and maybe it is paddling part of the Amazon. Who knows? But until the next show, make sure you do get out there. Have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>